Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of the Rocket Rant Podcast. Today is March 8th, um, 2021. My name is Thomas and with me as always is Dennis. Hello there. Yeah, so in today's episode, we're going to talk about the Mars Perseverance mission and about the geological context of this mission. So interest in the science objectives and the geology, then you, well, are welcome to stay. Otherwise, um, before we will go into our main part, we want to talk, as always, do this little introduction part. We're going to talk about our news and our news and our study in university or at our work. And for that, I will start, or we will start with Dennis. Um, so do you want to talk about something? Uh, a couple of things. Maybe at first I would like to address that we've been a bit late with this episode. And that's because we're both pretty busy right now. Uh, Thomas had a lot of work to do with conferences. Uh, I am currently preparing for some exams, basically the final exams uh, from my bachelor's degree. So, yeah, we have always said and we will keep it that way that our studies have priority for us, of course, and... That's why we've been a bit late. Um, yeah, so much for that. First explanation. Uh, I have once again switched rooms. <laughs> so I, I have the feeling that I keep doing this. I have the feeling that this is a never-ending story. Because at first I was recording in our bedroom on my desk with my laptop. Then I had to, at times, leave the bedroom because uh, my girlfriend had to go to work pretty early on, uh, pretty early in the day. Then I had this whole story that the delivery of my PC was delayed and delayed and delayed for weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> so we even fit our, refitted our schedule to meet the delivery which then didn't turn out <laughs> well because it was delivered on time. And then I finally set everything up in the bedroom. And now, once again, because, yeah, it's pretty impractical because I tend to work in the evening often. Uh, I mean, you and me, we record in the evening and stuff like that. And when she has to go to bed early, that's pretty impractical. So... We've decided to switch desks, so hers is now in the bedroom, mine is now in the living room, and I hope that at least until we move to Bonn later this year, this is going to be my final setup. So Yeah, update yeah. to that story next week. <laughs> right, hopefully not, but here we are. Uh, other news, the most major news from my side I have finally started working on dinosaur bones, um, which is very, very exciting to me. Yeah, clap, applaud me. <laughs> Honestly, this is pretty cool because, um, I mean, I've talked about the fact that I'm working at our natural history museum here in Münster and I'm working in the collection of said museum uh, and I was occupied with sorting mammal bones, ice age mammal bones of the past few months. And right now we're pretty much through with the part we want to 
uh, get through with. And yeah, now the next task is to sort dinosaur bones. These are lower Cretaceous dinosaurs from a dig site uh, in the Sauerland. Sauerland? Sauerland? German? English? Here in Germany, in northwestern Germany, uh, these are at least for the overwhelming part Igeonodon bones. So big herbivorous dinosaur, uh, one of the first dinosaurs to ever be discovered, this genus Igeonodon. Um, yeah, ba basically these bones are pyrotized. So during fossilization, a mineral called pyrite was, or fool's gold, as some people might know it, uh, has become part of this bone, these bones. And yeah, this results in these bones being pretty unstable in contact with the atmosphere. atmosphere. They tend to fall apart in contact with the atmosphere. So these bones have to be stored in airtight bags. And our task right now is to go through all these dinosaur bones and to have a look whether these bags are still sealed up, still airtight, uh, to note if they're not, and basically to fit some numbers. So pretty cool because you never learn more about something than when you're actually working with it. And right now I'm actually working with and looking at dinosaur bones, which is pretty cool. Feels like like a, it feels as if my lifetime so far would have been <laughs> focused on this singular moment. This feels like the fulfilling of a dream. I mean, working on dinosaur bones. This is. I don't. Uh, I mean, I get it, but <laughs> it sounds a bit funny because. I mean, you look at bags to see it's still closed. <laughs> oh, no. It's because of the bones, but yeah, plastic I know, I know. bags, I don't know. Interesting as well. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, that actually plays into the final part of my news section because um, I will announce it right now that next week we are going to talk about, among other things, this very dig site, because we do still work at a dig site, a lower Cretaceous dig site in the Sauerland each year. We uh, are active there for about four months every year. Uh, this is actually my third season this year working there. Uh, and well, details in the next episode, but these two dig sites seem to have some certain connections. Uh, the fossils are pretty similar. The age is very similar. The sediment is pretty similar. And yeah, this inspired me to finally talk about this episode. Because right now, just to uh, work with these bones, of course, I'm going through the literature, through the description of the fossils anyway. So why not compile all of this into the episode? Hmm. Yeah, so next week is for me an listening and asking question episode. Yeah, pretty <laughs> similar to the one last time for you. Yeah, or <laughs> this week. <laughs> yeah. For the most I part. Mean, yeah. oh. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> Thomas, what about you? Yeah, so for me, there were also some reasons. I mean, you've already said that uh, because uh, you already talked about it. That's what I wanted to say. 
So I'm currently have a conference next week, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, for which at the beginning of the year I've written two abstracts. So I basically entered the conference with two different topics. And one is a topic about my bachelor thesis. And I have one talk at this conference with this topic. And this year, because of course it's online, normally this would take place in Houston, Texas. But since it's online, everything is a bit different. And for the conferences, they are not live. They have to be pre-recorded and then uploaded so that everybody can watch it, the video over the, I think, time of the whole conference, like, I guess. I think after the conference, it's then taken off again, but I'm not sure about that. But it's yeah, not going to be available anywhere, is it? No, I think only if you have registered to the mm. conference. Yeah, unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know my talk. <laughs> I know it, yeah, uh, I've seen it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. unfortunately, uh, it w will uh, remain among the eyes of a few selected of your friends. <laughs> yeah, and then there will be also a small live section, like a Q&A section, where people can ask questions next week on Friday, which is also my birthday. That's going to be interesting. Yeah, so I've recorded, I've made a pre-recording talk and normally I would have thought that that would be quite easy to do because I love giving presentations. I love giving talks. I love just telling people what I've learned currently or something like that. I have a lot of fun with that. I'm not that nervous while doing this and normally people also like it when I'm giving talks or presentations at the university, for example. So I was really looking forward to that. Um, however, <laughs> turns out while pre-recording or while giving live presentation, um, it's very easy for me or not that difficult for me. Doing pre-recording talks seems to be quite a difference. So some aspects, first of all, I've started entangling myself in my words every mm. sentence <laughs> i had to restart basically on every slide i had to do a lot a lot of cuts um also it was quite difficult for me to get it on time like it does not it's not allowed to be over 15 minutes normally in a live presentation you would go like i don't know 20 seconds above or 30 seconds above and some guy will just tell you and okay it's okay or everything's all right but in that case if it's longer than 50 minutes you just can't upload it and yeah it was quite difficult to do um <laughs> but still i i it worked in the end yeah <laughs> it was really, a lot of work you should have listened to the audios i got from him over whatsapp <laughs> it was pretty much done it was spent yeah. Yeah, but but honestly, I can imagine. I can truly imagine because, <clears throat> while I mean, we don't really have too much experience ha having talks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how could we? We've only just started really getting into academia. You have more experience than I do. Um, mm. a bit more at least. 
but yeah i i can imagine because while having a talk you don't really think about mistakes you've made because nobody yeah. is going to remember it anyway <laughs> as long as your presentation is good and now it's in a video form where in theory everybody can go back to it and back yeah. to it and watch it over and over again but once again i think you and me we're both two guys who tend to think about such things too much yeah so uh, and, because and he, because honestly our talk was pretty good in the end i really liked it yeah in the end i'm i'm also now kind of <laughs> it's okay now <laughs> let's put it that way i'm happy with that that i'm finished and i think it looks good and the information is correct that i say and i think that's the most important part yeah and good example for like doing small mistakes that would normally not be such a large problem is that for example i said northeast trending instead of north south trending now if that would happen in a live talk you know everybody recognizes that you're showing a north south trend and that's it everybody knows okay you've misspoken maybe someone is asking you then in the q a section and it's okay you know nobody nobody matters um nobody but... matters <laughs> no no <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say it. It's, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and but uh, when you're doing a video, basically, then you want everything to be correct, and then it's it's different. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so much for the talk, and then I've had a poster to do for my other project that I'm currently doing with the DLR in Berlin. We're working on ExoMars, so on the Mars rover from the European Space Agency and the Roscosmos, or the Russian Space Agency, which is also focused on the search for life, similar to Perseverance. And I'm probably also going to talk about it later in this episode. And for that, we didn't poster. Now, to this year, there's like an online tool where you can create posters. Um, I actually... At first, I didn't like it, but in the end, I kind of liked it because it was very easy to do. It was very convenient to do in poster, but there's, they're like only very, mm, you don't have the ability to change anything really. You can mm. just choose a template, so the number of boxes, but you can't change, for example, the size of these text boxes. And all you can do basically is change the colors or the background and then that's it. So, I mean, you can add videos, for example, or audio, which I haven't used, but you could. But otherwise, there's not much you can do about it. But still, I think that it actually looks really good what I've done. And um, I try to get at least close to an eye catcher as possible. And at least I like how it looks like. And yeah, in the end... I kind of enjoyed it because it was very convenient and maybe for future conferences, if there are, or if there will be another online conferences, I hope that they will just add some, at least some small functions. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say hopes are that things won't have to be online next year, but as of now, I just tend to stay a bit more pessimistic yeah I, but I also know. i yeah but but also i i think that maybe like even if everything is you know 
finished basically with Corona and COVID and everything is as normal as it can be. Maybe smaller conferences will stay online just because people realize maybe it's not worth it to pay like mm. a lot of money to prepare anything, everything, or just to pay the pay the planes and everything like that. So mm. I think maybe like smaller conferences will maybe stay at this online format. I don't know, but yeah, I could I mean, imagine it at least. I mean, it depends really, I think. Yeah, because it depends on the conference. Yeah. Definitely. Um, for example, my hope was that the Flugsaurier, huh, haha, <laughs> German <laughs> word of the day, <laughs> that uh, the so-called Flugsaurier, pterosaur, pterodactyl, flying reptiles of the Mesozoic, brethren to the dinosaurs, legendary great animals. Look them up. Um, uh, I re I'm really into pterosaurs, uh, and so I do keep following updates on that on uh, this meeting, just because I have the dream to one day be a part of that in some way, shape, or form. And for example, I think this one is, is very well still planned to go ahead in person next year, because I, yeah. I don't know, so... I mean, it's a very, a rather small conference. I think, I think, what was it? About 60 people, 50 to 60 people meet there. Oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a small field. Uh, paleontology yeah, right. in general is a rather small field compared to other ones. And pterosaurs is even smaller than the dinosaur community. I mean, it, it's changing currently, I would say. But yeah. I don't know. This one is going to go ahead. I don't know it. I think it really depends on the exact field and how familiar everyone is. Because I think in cases where people do already know each other pretty well, for the most part, maybe it's you'd like to see them. Yeah, I think for these conferences, it'll probably be in person, which I think yeah. is good. But yeah. anyway, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Um, Mars. That's also the topic of today's podcast. And we're going to talk about Mars and Mars mm -hmm. rovers and maybe life on Mars um, after the small break in our main part. So see you there. It's now directly 426 hours since Perseverance landed on Mars. The landing did take place on the 18th of February 2021. And Dennis and I actually watched it together over Discord. Yeah, indeed. Right. Directly after our last recording. Yeah. How did you feel while watching it? Um, actually... Every time I watch something like that, I feel a bit sad that I didn't go into uh, planetary sciences because, <laughs> I don't know, to me, this really encompasses everything you think about when thinking about science, you know, this mm. team, which, which has worked over years and years on this. 
which has invested so much time and effort and it all comes to fruition, hopefully. And then everybody is waiting and yeah, everybody is anticipating the landing. It's, it's, I don't know, this tension and the relief afterwards. I don't know. I, I always think it's, it's great. It's feeling not comparable to anything else in the world of science. And yeah, damn it. I, I'll never get to feel that. <laughs> but ah. pretty, pretty cool. It's, it's always something special. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I was really nervous. I mean, <laughs> I know I, I was really nervous at first. But I actually had the feeling the closer to get to the landing, mm. for some reason, I was less nervous. I don't know. Um, and then while watching the beautiful NASA stream, as always, <laughs> with their beautiful animations. Yeah, that, um, that was a bit weird. That was a bit weird yeah. because uh, the footage, the footage wasn't really prepared. It was a simulation, and someone just basically fumbled around in the animation twisting the model during of of the lander during the animation i mean you could follow at which stage you are mm. at which stage of the landing they are right now but it was just this weird animation with someone fumbling around in it and twisting the model a bit yeah i i i was i found it weird that they didn't have anything prepared okay. I mean, I'm, I don't know if that's like a live updated, I mean, live in quotes, but, um, you know, like an updated version of the landing. So when the rover, for some reasons that are very bad, but for some reason speeds up yeah. with like, then the footage would, would have also sped up. I don't yeah. know. But, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Weird. But I, yeah. what I actually found more interesting was the control room because yeah as we we've said we, these people are under so much pressure and it's yeah i always love this moment when you see the relief on their faces and this genuine demonstration of joy just joy and this huge burden falling off from their shoulders and by the way one one guy had this you know this cartoon dog from the this is fine meme dog sitting in the burning house on his table which was pretty interesting <laughs> this is fine yeah I, I can just imagine how that how that feels like i i think just I, ease of work i think i would really get along with this guy good sense of humor <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, I also really enjoyed it, of course. After that, I like was on a small walk due, due to this, uh, through the city, <laughs> just thinking down. again about it. <laughs> yeah, so did you see the video of the landing? I mean, of course you did, but... Yeah, yeah. afterwards. Oh, I amazing. wasn't expecting that. Did anybody know oh, that I they would know. release it? Uh, no, I mean, the... I did not know if you saw that, but they had like this trailer for this conference and mm. this trailer was like complete hype. Like it was something, it it seems like a trailer for a movie <laughs> and it was just a 
such a contrast to the to like the live show that we've seen before, mm. as we said. And now we had like this high quality um, trailer for this conference and at the evening, yeah, for this press conference. Um, but since I know or like I have just thought that it would be like a sequence of images, you know, like a movie in quotes, like a sequence of every I don't know 10, 15 seconds, one image or something like that. Which would have still been amazing. I mean, I would have been probably blown away by that too. But I have not expected such high quality landing video. That was amazing. I was really blown away. Completely yeah. blown away. Definitely. That. I mean, it's so great. I, we keep repeating that, but what a time to be alive. I mean, just imagine what really high quality images we've gotten over the past few years be that yeah from the juno mission to jupiter and oh my god jupiter is the most beautiful thing i've ever seen uh also saturn saturn uh yeah now this landing video it's it's such a great time to be alive really i mean <laughs> when now seeing like the 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 landing method i will say in video it makes it so much more um how do i say that so perseverance and also curiosity landed with the sky crane maneuver which is called so basically at first the descent um the landing model basically uses um what are they called parachutes parachutes right so they use parachutes for like the upper meters of mars to slow down and then but since the atmosphere is so thin they then have to use rocket engines mm. to land the rover but since these rocket engines would then blow up dust and rocks and all the material the rover could get damaged so what they're doing is they're using like a jetpack and then they lower the rover itself um, by a sky crane so by cables basically they let the river down by cables till it touches the ground and then the sky crane will detach and fly away it's just and it just shoots off right yeah it just shoots off without and then crashes somewhere yeah it's not meant to be recovered or reusable no. or anything no no it just has to crash large uh, far away from the rover <laughs> <laughs> um and i don't know this is just I mean, it, it makes sense to do it like that, but still, there's so many aspects that can go wrong. This just this whole operation <laughs> seems like just on large flags. Yeah. Like imagine, imagine they're trying to figure out a way to land these large rovers, and then one guy is like, "Yeah, we could use like a jetpack and then let the rover down by cables." <laughs> and everyone is like, "Oh, what's wrong with you? We can't do that." And then <laughs> over time, they're like, "Oh, maybe." <laughs> maybe that is the way to do it <laughs> and it's amazing that we can do these things yeah. at all yeah yeah it's it's so amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah so about perseverance <laughs> maybe to get into the podcast indeed um, perseverance launched on uh july uh in july 2020 so last year um it was or the well, to get a bit of history very quickly, 
um, curiosity or the idea of a new Mars rover by NASA was um, well announced in 2012. So after the landing of the Curiosity rover, the idea of having new Mars mission was already well an idea since 2010, basically. And then they had the idea to do a mission return, um, yeah, a sample return mission, and we will talk about it later. Then in 2011. And then in 2012, they said, well, let's do this all in one and do a Mars rover and then combine that with a sample return mission. And that was 2012. So since then, um, they're working on that mission. And yeah, here we are. This actually, actually, it's quite a fast mission, don't you think? For yeah. such a large rover. Absolutely. And it has a reason. There's a reason why it was that fast, but I think we'll talk about it later when we talk about the rover itself. Yeah, uh, it's it's actually I was also quite surprised how quick yeah. all this went because I was expecting like yeah early two thousands maybe because yeah. Uh, yeah things have to go through a lot of different instances uh, through a lot of different uh, offices and yeah uh, a lot with NASA. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> surprising, really surprising, but all Actually, the more brilliant that it worked out like that. Yeah. Actually, maybe it's the best way to talk about it now. Um, so the reason why it was so fast is that it's basically an updated, in quotes, version of the um, mm. Curiosity rover. Yeah. It actually uses some spare parts <laughs> of the Curiosity rover. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, it's but it's an updated version. It's heavier, about two hundred and kilograms. Um, heavier. It weighs around one ton, one metric ton, and Curiosity weighs around eight hundred yeah. kilograms. So there are both, some things that were added. They're both cars. Uh, I mean, we'll yeah. link to that in the YouTube description. So also, if you're listening <clears throat> on Spotify, Spotify or uh, Google Podcasts. When you will look either at the NASA website for uh, Perseverance or uh, whether whether you will look at the links in the description of the YouTube version of this podcast, there are actually also 3D models of this rover. Yeah. If you're curious or you want to follow the instruments we're going to talk about, and this also goes for the landing zone. Uh, so yeah, check that out and... I think it's also pretty interesting to see these rovers for yourself, uh, especially yeah. to get a feeling for the scale, because oftentimes I, I I always tend to think that they're smaller because I tend to mm. for forget that these are car size. Yeah, but then there was opportunity and spirit, and I thought they were, these were also as large. Mm. But they're actually yeah. incredibly small. After <laughs> I, 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 I saw like an image of them with people standing next to them, I was quite surprised how small they are. But yeah, yeah perseverance, uh, perse perseverance, sorry, and curiosity are car size. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and really heavy. Impressive, very impressive. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah, because it's just uh, not just it's an upgraded version of the. Um, Mars Science Laboratory or Curiosity, they can, or they were able to build it really fast. 
and this is called the heritage approach. Um, so basically, I saw somewhere describing it like evolution, um, like biological evolution, <laughs> trying to use something that already exists and try to build it so that it fits your new, um, well, your new, new requirements. And it's also much lower cost overall, of course. So the Mars Perseverance rover is focused to search for, well, signs of ancient life on Mars. That's the main focus. It tries to figure out astrobiological questions, but also, of course, geological questions. So the main question, the main objective is, well, is whether Mars was ever inhabited, yes or no. And that's was, well, that is what this whole mission is built around. It also, of course, tries to provide new insights for the Mars geology, planetary science, and also for future human missions to Mars. It's also at some parts, and I'm going to talk about it later, an, well, technical demonstration mission. Now, I think we can go like through the main objectives of the mission. So while researching, I actually wanted to have like an because I did know that from the ExoMars rover, like a um, step-step plan, what they're trying to do, like when they're trying to do what. However, the error I searched, it does not seem like this plan is at least public. Um, and they more have like this overall ideas that they want to do. And it seems like they're more or less then trying to figure out once they've landed um, how to approach. There are of course some timing constraints and everything like that, but it seems like more that they want to go on more open approach. Which of course makes sense since the lifetime or like the minimum lifetime is about one Mars year, which are two Earth years. So that's a really large mission. And then of course it makes sense to be a bit more open for um, yeah possible timing of different activities of the room mm. itself. Yeah, and uh, they're also going to explore this crater in detail. Yeah. Uh, we are going to talk about the crater later on after the mission pro profile and the instruments and the technical aspects. Uh, but yeah. they are going to go into detail with this crater because it's a very complex uh, structure. A lot has happened mm -hmm. there in some way, shape or form. and. Uh, therefore, I think it's pretty advantageous to be open for spontaneous plans and spontaneous ideas. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely. Um, also about the landing site itself, Dennis will tell us later a bit more. And yeah. I'm trying to focus on like the rover site itself. Okay, so let's go to the mission objectives. Um, and they are like different level of requirements that I want to achieve. And the first one is just an overall idea. They want to characterize the processes that formed and modified the geological record and search for evidence for an astrobiological relevant ancient environment and geologic diversity. And that's why they've chosen the um, Chesero crater. And this is the one we are talking about later. So the overall mission is just very broad. Yeah. By the way, we want to figure out the geological record and also the astrobiological, um, yeah, 
about the idea of the astrobiological relevant environment, something like that. So very broad. By reading that, I figured something out. Most of the, you know, it seems like always geology is the science that sometimes is kind of overstepped. You know what I mean? Like you have astrophysics and anything yeah. like that. And geology somewhere like often, oh yeah, that also exists. And they talk about rocks, right? It has this reputation to be this, it's it's not the shiniest of topics, not the shiniest, yeah. the shiniest of disciplines. The results are often what is then presented, yeah, but the science itself often is not so much described in detail. Yeah, and, and the interesting point is that these Mars rovers are so well known, they're basically pop stars, <laughs> and yeah. they are basically geologists. <laughs> Indeed. And yeah. Perseverance uh, is a paleontologist, to be exact. Yeah, also, he's like a multi... <laughs> Multi-talent, a geoscientist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that's like the overall broad um, the overall broad objective. And then the next level would be they want to perform the... Um, or they want to um, study the astrobiological relevant... Or they want to do astrobiological relevant investigations. So they first want to determine the habitability of this environment, of the Jezero Crater. The former. Could have been... Hmm? The former. Former. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly right. The former ability. Exactly. So could this place have been in the ancient times of Mars be habitable, yes or no? And um, then they want to search for materials that are biosignatures or materials that have an preservation potential for biosignatures. And then they want to directly search evidence, if there is evidence for potential evidence of past life. That was two times evidence, but I think you know what I mean. Um, and here, I think we have to explain what um, biosignatures are. So a biosignature is basically just an object or a substance or a pattern, um, like visual or chemical pattern, that forms or this origin is by a biological process. And then the usefulness of a biosignature is then determined if it's like, if this biosignature can only form by life or if there are also some non-biological process that could also produce it. Like for example, limestones, right? They yeah. can be built up by life, but also by non-biological activity. So you kind of have to be careful what a biosignature actually is and if it's if it has a biological origin or not. So there are further studies then needed. But yeah, that's basically biosignature. For the Mars 2020 mission, the science definition team identified six classes of biosignatures for this mission. The first one is pretty straightforward, organic molecules. So if you have an organic molecule, then, well, that's, of course, a biosignature. Then you have macrostructures and textures, so basically fossils. Um, something they thought about was stromatolites, which we have on Earth, or reefs. So structures that can be seen by your visual eye, basically. Just looking at it and you see a structure that seemed or could have formed by life. We also have microstructures. So these are microfossils, just on a very small scale, um, like biofilms. 
and we have just um, yeah chemistry biosignatures. These are just chemical features that could suggest biological processing, like the abundance of a specific element um, that could be enriched by life. Then we have the isotopic record, and we've talked now a lot about isotopes in the last episodes. So I think we're going to step over the explanation of what isotopes are. <laughs> um, but also we know from Earth that isotopic patterns um, often can be influenced by life, for example, by carbon, where we have that life tends to use another carbon isotope. Um, so if we see then a high abundance of this carbon isotope, it can give us the idea that life was involved. And the last um, biosignature would be just minerals. An explanation would be, for example, limestones, but also phyllosilicates, clay minerals, um, that are very interesting. And I think I'm going to also talk about um, later. Is there anything else you want to add to the biosignature part? Uh, no, because that's pretty much everything I encountered as well. Um, so I actually know because, well, now I can talk about my project. Um, so with the DLR, I'm working on the ExoMars rover, and or not directly on the rover, but on a topic that is related to the rover. So the ExoMars ESA rover, the Rosen Franklin rover, is also landing in quite a similar environment as Perseverance. And... The idea that we have is we want to study a site that is like some 100 kilometers away from the landing site to see if the landing site itself is like a reference for all of the setting or if it's like very specific. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just to see like what can we do then with the data the rover will um, will study. Like can we use that for an larger global or regional um, regional work or do we can't use it because it's so specific in this region that it does not say anything else about other regions on Mars. That's yeah, the idea. Exactly. Basically, is it representative for yeah. the bigger picture? Is it rep representative of a bigger region, <clears throat> the planet in general, or is it pretty much its own thing? And this mission is also focused on a search for life. And I know that they have like this rating system of biosignatures to calculate the potential of life. Mm. Like they're, they're starting like, if there is there visible evidence for staying or moving water, like ripples or I don't know, in Delta. Um, so that would give you like ground points. Like they would give you, okay, we have, yes, we have this evidence. Then that would be like, I don't know, I think it was between five and 15 points, something like that. And then they're like, okay, are there any visual biosignatures? Mm. And then they're listed some biosignatures. And then for each biosignature they find, you will get like this rating, like points um, that, that are added to your overall rating. So that in the end, you can look at something at your points and then you can see like how likely this is made by life. Yes or no. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and to show how that works, they used it for early fossils on earth. Like also the discussed stuff where we are still not sure about if that's a fossil, yes or no. 
then they use like this rating system then on Earth to see how likely it is for this very early fossils to actually be evidence of love uh, of early life. I don't know how if they're doing something like that for the Master Perseverance mission. I found nothing. Um, but I could imagine that they're using something similar because they have to be very careful with biosignatures. As I said, they can be also created by, or some of them, many of them, by non-biological processes. Yeah, I mean, a good example for this discussion is what is going on with Venus right now. Yeah. Where you have phosphine, which is very, or which <coughs> the authors of the corresponding paper said was a very very good candidate of an indicator for life because they went mm -hmm. through a lot of different scenarios which uh, could be potential contenders but in the end they ruled out a lot of that but on the other hand you have other voices saying it could still come from other different processes and this and that and yeah it's a complex yeah. topic. Um, yeah, so these are the biosignatures and these are important because they can give us an idea if life has existed or not. One of these biosignatures would be, for example, um, limestones, carbonaceous material, uh, carbonaceous minerals that are also present on Mars, where well, these structures, of course, shows us that there is water or that there was water at some point in the history of Mars, because otherwise these um, carbonaceous minerals wouldn't have formed. But again, this is the question, did they form because of life or did they form by some um, process that is unrelated to biology? And then we have another um, biosignature, for example, also on the mineral side. These are hydrous phyllosilicates or clay minerals and this is interesting because this is something that i'm working on with this um, exomars project now phyllosilicates are also called sheet silicates and that's because they form parallel sheets of the silicate tetrahedras so on a very small scale they form these parallel sheets you know like mica or biotite mineralogy mineralogy yay uh, <laughs> and <laughs> some of them contain uh, water so water is built in the structure or some oh groups and some of them are called the clay minerals and that's too much to mineralogy now we can't try to interpret what these minerals are <laughs> no no more structures <laughs> no we've had enough of that and right now i have to learn stuff like that uh, so <laughs> my exam is going to be about that it's basically about microscopy of uh, minerals. Yeah. But this so, is pretty interesting. And I think you'll get to that right now, what that yeah. could mean. Yeah, definitely. So first of all, because they inhibit water, or inhibit is the right word, because they have an abundance of water within a structure, yeah. we know that they form, um, or they have to f there has to be water presence to form for them. And then it's difficult to say what kind of water. Um, so the Martian topography is quite interesting because the northern Mars is much lower in topography. It's called the Martian lowlands. And it's also a very smooth area. 
and the southern part of Mars is topographic much higher and it's in rough um, and rough surface. And that's why some people, some scientists think that there could have been an ocean in the northern area of Mars. And these phyllosilicates, these clay minerals, we actually find at the possible shore region um, of this possible ocean. So one idea is that this large, um, uh, well, this, this large area of standing water, this ocean could have provided the water for these minerals to form. However, this could, for example, also form due to groundwater or hydrothermal activity. The water does not have to be, um, well, in form of a large ocean. There are also some other ways this water could have formed. However, just the abundance of water, of course, is important when we ask um, the question if this area was for some time um, habitable. That's the first point. Then we know that these phyllosilicates need moderate pH conditions and also a redox reducing environment. And also these points or these conditions favor life. So that's the next part where these minerals are interesting. Then there are many ideas actually for the, from, or the origin of life on Earth that use phyllosilicates to explain the formation of life because these phyllosilicates themselves could have served as reaction centers for organic molecules. So maybe phyllosilicates actually played an important role in the origin of life here on Earth. So that's another important part while phyllosilicates are interesting when you want to look for evidence of ancient life. But the very important part here is that these clay minerals can bind organic molecules to their structure and therefore prevent their decay. And that is interesting or that is important because when we talk about water on Mars, like this large ocean or rivers or lakes, anything like that, we talk about an age that was very, very long ago. We talk about the first billion years of the Martian history. So 4.5, 4, 3.5 billion years ago. That's extremely, extremely long ago. And over such long period of time, of course, these things decay. So if you have organic molecules, they would decay over that long period of time. We know that from Earth, if we study rocks that are some billions of years old, most of the biological, it's basically useless for um, biosignatures or um, chemical biosignatures because most of them have already decayed. Now we know that Mars has a slower, like a slower rate of erosion and stuff like that. So that would influence um, the decay rate. But the important part is that these phyllosilicates can bind the molecules and prevent them from decaying. And that's why if you want to search for organic molecules, then these phyllosilicates, these clay minerals, are really, really interesting. And that's why many of these studies focus 
on these minerals. For example, also Curiosity Rover. Um, also, these Philosidicate deposits were a prime target for the rover itself. The next big part of the mission is the sample return part. And the main goal is well, very easy. We want to have our first samples directly from Mars. All the samples that we currently have from Mars are meteorites that were once part of the Martian surface and then were catapulted into space by an impact and then brought to Earth. So what we want to have are the first samples, direct samples to study. And the idea is following. The rover will now um, select some scientific interesting um, areas. It will then obtain samples. It will study the surrounding material, the surrounding geological diversity. It will then study the sample itself and will, um, will put them in samples, seal them into sample capsules that will then be stored first in the rover and then basically just laid on the surface where they will then rest for the next years. Until someone happens to pick them up. Yeah, <laughs> that that's the idea. Um, yeah, so the idea is that in some years, in the next 10 years basically, a joint ESA-NASA mission will two missions basically one will bring a lander to mars with a small rover and that rover will then follow the tracks of perseverance and take all the samples with him and then it will drive back to the to the lander which will then launch a rocket again into an orbit and then an ESA mission will come pick that up and bring it back to earth that's the idea. Um, maybe to explain the samples are taken by a drill, so not just surface sample, but drill down some centimeters and then the samples were taken from the subsurface area. I think we will discuss that later. Um, it's a very interesting part, but I'm a bit afraid of that part and that's something I really want to talk about. <laughs> talk about okay, now my interest is peaked. Uh, yeah. You didn't tell me before. Yeah. I, I think you will get me when I talk about it later. Okay. And the last part of the mission is to contribute for the preparation for human exploration. Um, so they want to fill strategic knowledge gaps. So these strategic knowledge gaps or SKGs are gaps in our knowledge um, or information that are required to reduce the risk and um, improve the effectiveness of human space exploration missions. Um, so everything that involves future human activity, basically. And they want to provide, um, yeah, to fill in these gaps. These are, for example, the um, resource utilization of propellant and consumable oxygen. This is the characterization of the atmospheric dust to understand its effects on the surface systems and the human health, to study the surface weather, 
and um, also to study some other technology, techno, technological, Jesus, technological um, things, like for example, the heat shield that they've used. Um, can such CGs then, for example, also be used for future human missions? And this, well, in the end, is the complete mission plan. So what I want to do is, first of all, geology, astrobiology, sample return, future human missions. These four points are the major objectives for the mission itself. Now, to provide um, to these mission profiles. Um, they will have two Earthies, as previously said, and they have a large amount of instruments that they're going to use. I won't present them now, and I try to stay like just the important part, like the why it is interesting, for what questions this instrument is interesting, and I'm not want to go into detail of the technical side um let's start with the head and the neck of the rover <laughs> um so I like, I like that they're always presented like actual feeling sensing beings yeah. human beings <laughs> um that's also like the style of the selfies that they always do <laughs> <laughs> welcome to my forever home <laughs> Yeah, so on top of the rover, on this head, we have the, now let's start with the eyes, the mast cam, mast cam C. This is a pair of multispectral cameras that, so they can do color images. And well, they are the eyes of the rover. Maybe not direct the eyes of the rover because the rover itself has like six cameras that are distributed through all of the rover to see possible dangers and anything like that. But these are like the two main cameras that we want or from which we get the beautiful images that we already can see and will see in the future. Yeah, so this camera is, um, it can do panoramic shots. It can do 360 degree shots. It can zoom basically to get telephoto images of individual targets and well, of course, it's an awesome thing for the public. We want to have good images to um, well advertise the mission. But it also has a very important geological or scientific approach or context because geologists, well, we work a lot with our eyes. <laughs> <laughs> we go somewhere and then just look at the outcrop look at the rocks, see patterns, try to see patterns from the distance, try to see patterns close up. We need our eyes. We can then use data and numbers to give us more ideas to conclude some things, but we need the context. And that's why cameras are actually important. We want to have the large context, see the large area, but then the camera has also this telezoom where then we can look at individual rocks, for example, to um, or the surrounding material of a rock to get then a closer, smaller context. Yeah, and there's a camera where I get the beautiful images from. So if you don't know, um, you can go to the NASA website and we have an, there's already a raw image um, website where you can see 
all the raw images that are made by the rover itself. There are already over 8,000 images uploaded. <laughs> um, I've gone through some, so like every day in the morning I go through some of the images. There are already some very interesting ones. What about storage space? Just a quick question, because often they're limited. They have a yeah. limited amount of data they can send back or image data. And you are the one who looked into the technical side of things. So um, this is a huge amount of data. And is yeah. it limited in some way? Did you read that? Um, so I searched for the storage space. But yeah. the number I found was incredible low. Um, I haven't noted uh -huh. it, but it was, it wasn't that large. It was some gigabytes, maybe it, it was extremely low, but I think what I do is following, um, the mission has a very high energy antenna and I basically just send everything. So there is no background memory or, uh, I mean, I, I am not really the one who knows much about these things. <laughs> I'm always more the type of guy who's in, who was interested in engines and gearboxes, <laughs> less in computers. So ba um, basically it just sends it out and that's it. As far as I know, it does not have like a large storage at least not in the mission profile papers. And I did not found one that was specifically to the memory mm. of the rover. Maybe I have to look that up for the next time, maybe. Um, but I, I'm not sure currently. Let's put it like that way. Um, while we're talking about the memory, we can now talk about the brain of the, of, of the, of the rover. Do you know that they use a processor? that is based on a processor that was introduced in 1997? No, absolutely yeah. not. Uh, why is that? <laughs> so that's, that's an old um, IBM processor that was used by Apple back then, like in its MacBooks, in its very early MacBooks. Hmm. Um, the reason for that, it, it, I mean, the processor is really slow. It does not compare to like the processor that you have in your computer today. However, it works. And that's the important part. It's extremely robust and it works. And it's and certainly cheaper than <laughs> more modern components. Yeah, but it's not about the price, of course. Yeah. I mean, at that point, these are probably so rare that, <laughs> that they are pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah, but, but a part but is interest, yeah. interesting. I mean, this processor has to work for the next years to come. Mm -hmm. You know, it just has to work. <laughs> And with that, they know that it does work. Yeah. Um, of course, they also modified it. So it has like a radiation shield um, because it has to, and that's the next part. It has to um, work in extreme environments and like your modern processors that you have in the computer um, are not made for a lot. Mm. <laughs> that's why they're using this very old. <laughs> <laughs> this is stuff you just, don't tend to think about. Yeah. I mean, I thought they wanted to have like this. I mean, I don't know, you know, how much processing data or ability they need to have, you know, mm. maybe it's not that much, <laughs> but um, no, it has to be not that much if they're using such an old, old device. But yeah, 
<laughs> that's the brain. And then this, um, when we look at the head, we see this one very large camera, basically. And this is the Supercam. And it's built upon the Curiosity Rover's CamCam. So C-H-E-M, CAM. And it's a remote sensing instrument to get ideas or to get measurements of the chemical um, composition of rocks, basically. Um, it's a remote sensing Raman spectro spectroscopy, spectroscopy, jeez, I always have problems with the words. Um, it uses Raman spectroscopy. Now, what this means is that they can use it from distance of two meters, but still can get resolutions of up to a sub-millimeter scale at a single point. <laughs> It's like an extreme sniper, basically. They see a rock in distance and can then look at the sub-millimeter scale point at that rock to get first um, ideas of the chemistry. Um, so for that's pretty interesting. Or this is a very important instrument because you can look at a rock to see if it's interesting to study in closer detail or not. We can get just ideas. I mean, this is pretty accurate, but still we can get ideas of material that just lies around us and then we can decide if we want to give it a closer look or not. So, yeah, pretty important instrument. Um, it can observe um, like different styles of minerals, like for example, if you have silicates or carbonates or sulfates, stuff like that. And it can also already um, observe organic molecules. So this is maybe one of the most important instruments on board the rover. And then last instrument on this head and neck of the rover is the MIDA. Um, and this just um, a suite of sensors that um, they use to provide um, weather measurements and dust characterization. So it measures the wind speed, the wind direction, atmospheric pressure, temperature, humidity, stuff like that. And it also can um, get ideas of the op optical properties of the dust. And it also has microfilms installed. Um, so we have now our first real um, recordings of the Martian wind. And yeah, this was done with this instrument, basically. Do you want to listen? <laughs> I was about to ask that. Uh, let's see whether it works. Yeah, let's see if it works. So I hope you heard it. It was, uh, I mean, you can boost it up then in the recording, um, but it's, hmm, it's, it's, it's pretty quiet. I mean, I still was, I found it pretty cool, but it's, um, I expected a bit more, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, same with me. It's, uh, the first time you played it, I didn't even notice it because I thought you were fumbling around with your microphone. Um, <laughs> 
it's more I mean, the about atmosphere. the meaning. It's more about yeah. the meaning of the sound. This is the first. I mean, you said the first actual recording, true recording yeah. of Mars true, wind, example. and yeah. so it's more about that, and it's less about uh, the impressiveness of the audio itself. Like what we've done before is recording, um, you know, like movement of the rover itself that is due to the wind. Mm. You know, like the vibrations of the rover, oh, and then okay. try to well use these vibrations to then put again into sound waves. Um, but this is like the first time that we use an actual microphone. They also actually should have recorded the landing itself, but that didn't work. I don't mm. know why. They have not gone into detail yet. Mm. Um, but that did not work. So I don't know if both of them are correctly working now, but at least we have our first recordings of Martian wind. So now we can maybe get an idea of how it is to stand there, um, listen to the sound of Mars and <laughs> slowly suffocating. If you can hear the sound of the wind, then you yeah. probably don't have your spacesuit on, right? Yeah, um, you yeah. should be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but that's that's the instrument basically the ears of the rover um yeah and then to maybe go a bit quicker through the other instruments we have on this robotic arm located in front of the rover and this has also two very important instruments on board so first of all it has a drill to drill into the subsurface and then to analytical instruments. So first of all, we have Pixel. Um, Pixel is an X-ray fluorescence spectrometer. And with that, we can do, um, well, well, first of all, we can, of course, do chemical um, analysis of the rocks and the soils, but we can do like small maps of the of this area we can do images and the microstructures in a micrometer scale and then we can do maps of the element distribution in these very small regions so we can for example look at a microstructure that may be a fossil and then we can do a chemical analysis of this whole region and see if there are like variations of element abundances and stuff like that to then see if there are like correlations between the structure and the abundance of specific elements. That is then very interesting if we have a lamination of some sort, or if you want to study like if there are individual grains that are different in the chemical composition. And yeah, to get like that also an emission profile for that, um, for that instrument. So first of all, they want of course, just a spatial coloration of elements to constrain the mineralogy. Then they want to use element maps to recognize textures or microstructures that are not apparent in visible images. Um, then they want to like look at individual sedimentary grains. They want to look at laminates or like intrusions, very small intrusions. And then they want to see if like these element abundances have recognizable characteristics, like, for example, if they are due to alteration um, or something like that. 
and just to get an idea of the overall bulk rock chemistry, basically. So that is very also very useful. I mean, I don't have to say that because all these instruments are useful, otherwise <laughs> they would not be on board. Um, <laughs> yeah. Then the other instrument on the arm is Sherlock, of course, named after Sherlock Holmes. Um, it provides high spatial resolution of the chemical composition. Um, it can get up to 15 micrometers per pixel. So very, very detailed. And with that, we are able then to detect organic functional groups, such as carbon hydrogen or, um, I don't know, different carbon oxygen bounds, different carbon carbon bounds. We can then also look at some mineral species that are interesting, interesting biosignature like carbonates, perchlorates, sulfates, phyllosilicates. So with that, we can then explicitly look for organic molecules, aromatic organic carbonic molecules, for example. Um, so this instrument is very important also when we look for search, um, signs of life. Um, yeah, these are the instruments that are both located at the robotic arm of the rover. And then there are some distributed throughout, uh, throughout the body of the rover. We have Moxie. This is very interesting. <laughs> this is the, um, well, it's a demonstration instrument. Basically they want to create oxygen out of the carbon dioxide in the uh, air. Yeah. That's for fuel, right? Fuel and breathable oxygen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, we need to breathe. I forget that. <clears throat> yeah. And it's actually a pretty important part, of course, of a mission, of a human mission. Yeah, indeed. Um, for the International Space Station, <laughs> we have to fly oxygen up there. Um, so, yeah, or water and then make oxygen out of that. But, yeah. yeah. So then, then we can produce it um, in C2. Then we have Rimfax. This is a ground radar which we can look into in depth of up to 10 meters. And with that, we can see the underground or subsurface structure, like a layering or some buried materials. It can also detect water and ice in a subsurface within five meters of the surface. However, uh, the landing site was explicitly picked because it has no water within the first five meters of the surface. Um, basically because it's not allowed. So Mars has these special regions that they are called. And these are regions where liquid water may be present surface near, and we are not allowed to land rovers there because of contamination. Yeah, we want to protect the possible life. Yeah, that's a pretty important part of all of these missions. That's what I came across uh, all the time as well. Yeah. And of course, that's pretty important because, first of all, if you want to study something, you want to try and not contaminate it because otherwise you've altered all future observations and you'll have to take into account everything in terms of contamination that could have t possibly taken place. And of yeah. course, if there was any life around, you don't want to disturb it. And these are like 
areas that we can look into uh, in the future when we can be more careful when we have better better techniques maybe humans um, and presence on mars so we can be very careful and study them from maybe distance or very very carefully so that we know we do not disturb them yeah but till that point they are a no-go area yeah and then we have uh ingenuity the first helicopter on another planet <laughs> yay finally <laughs> um yeah so that's a small they call it helicopter but <laughs> second drone yeah uh, um it's very small it has like two um, blades made of carbon fiber so very light material that two blades that counter rotate because mars has a very thin atmosphere so it's a bit tricky to get it into flight mm. um, it has solar panels um, and with that it gets enough energy for like 90 second flights um, per day and it will do a series of test flights over 30 martian days starting in spring and within the next months basically it's currently located at the belly of the rover and it will then be detached yeah within the next months weeks maybe uh, and it's more of a tech demonstration basically yeah. trying to figure out how to fly in this atmosphere i like yeah. uh, there are these recordings of early tests and Jesus Christ, this helicopter, it vibrates as hell. Like, like for real, it looks as if it could rip itself apart any minute. Yeah. These early it has tests. to be like this high energy to get up into, into yeah. the atmosphere of Mars. Yeah, that's, that's what was really impressive. Uh, they showed these recordings during the stream, I think, as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Drones are very useful on Earth, and they of course will be useful in the future, maybe for human explorations. But there are also some mission concepts that were actually approved already to um, tighten the moon of um, Jupiter, that has a very thick atmosphere. And there's a mission called Dragonfly, which um, is a large drone, basically, that um, in the 2030s is going to study this moon. That's well, like the first flight of human, of humanity on a, on another planet. <laughs> yeah, and with that to the last um, part, and this is the sample return science, um, S um, SRS or sample return science. Um, Perseverance has forty three sample tubes located at the also at the um, at the belly of the rover. Five of them will be used for blanks, so to see if the um, rover itself is contaminated. And there are five of them, so to get like in different time ranges to do a blank measurement to see if there's like a continuous contamination of the rover. And yeah, it can store then the samples at the belly and then at some point it will just... <laughs> I don't know, it just sounds so weird. And then at some point it will place them on the surface and the samples can then live within these tubes for like 10 years. 
within this 10 years, they have to be then um, taken. And then they can also survive additional 10 years in orbit. Uh, what yeah. exactly do you mean with they can stay there for 10 years until they're too degraded or until yeah bags like are too tubes. damaged? Yeah, I mean, probably a bit longer, but like the tubes have a lifetime, like the mm. ceiling has a lifetime for 10 years, they say. Yeah. And then like, I think the danger is too high that they get contaminated by yeah. the Martian atmosphere or something like that. Yeah, and of course we want samples. But yes, the rover has very advanced instruments and it can be very precise. But having a human in a laboratory with really large instruments that some of them take up literally um, full rooms are of course more precise. And we of course can do more stuff here in Earth with the materials. And that's why we want to have samples. Yeah, and you can be spontaneous about it here on Earth. Yeah. You can come up with new ways to study them and maybe in a few decades someone will have a brilliant idea and you will still have them in storage. Yeah. And the important part is, as I said, we now have Martian meteorites, but we don't know where they're from. We just know they're from Mars, but don't know where exactly they're from. And now we, because of the rover, we exactly know where the sample was taken. So we know the context in the region and then we can do much more precise um, discussions and implications of the of the measured chemical abundances, for example. Um, since this is the last instrument, and before we will go into the landing site part, do you want to hear why I'm a bit afraid of the sample return part? Yes, I was wondering about that when you mentioned it earlier. <laughs> yeah, so my problem is, and I know that there are also some other people that are a bit afraid of that. That's like a main part of the, of the whole project, you know, sample return. That's one of the main parts, but all these other missions to Mars are still not yet even approved because they're just mm. concepts. There is no lander currently existing. There is no transport vehicle that brings a sample back currently existing. There's no second rover existing that takes the samples. It's just concepts to that point. And you know how space exploration can be, um, well, really dependent on politics and stuff like that. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, funding is a huge thing, especially for NASA. Exactly. And I'm a bit afraid that these missions will get like pushed back and pushed back oh, and pushed yeah. back to the point where they maybe, you know, never happen. I was thinking about the exact same thing when you said that it, they have to be recovered within the next 10 years, because talking in modern terms and talking in modern terms of space exploration, 10 years is basically tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, we mentioned before that it's it's it was pretty amazing that it only took the took this mission eight years. Twenty twelve, you said. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty twelve. Uh, so eight to nine years. Yeah. Uh, to arrive there and to come to fruition. Uh, so yeah. I didn't. I mean, you were more into this kind of stuff. So I often don't have 
that much background knowledge because I I don't know. I had the feeling I thought that there already was something more concrete planned. Yeah. And and then also, you know, the, the lender then will be made from NASA, but the small robot which will then collect all the samples will be made by ESA. And mm. you know, ESA still has no I mean we have one European master rover which is currently already built. It's waiting for its launch um, in 2022, so next year. But also we have, in, you know, except for that, no real um, yeah, knowledge about doing Mars rovers. So I found that a bit interesting. Mm. And also, you know, I get the idea. Um, we want to have samples from that have enlarged geological diversity. So all over the crater. And therefore, we cannot just have a lander that picks that up. We need a rover that drives around and picks them up. But still, I don't know, like a second rover that drives exactly behind Perseverance Base, not exactly behind him, but like all the way that Perseverance went, just to collect all the samples to bring them then back to a lander. I don't know, it just seems kind of impractical. I, I mean, there are reasons for that, of course, but yeah uh, I, I just wish that it was already finished you know that they yeah, have yeah. all the things that they need that it's just waiting there for the launch it's just there and just waiting till they get enough samples to collect and like that it just seems like this yeah we will do that in the future hopefully you know anyhow um that's about the rover and the instruments and um I guess you're going to talk a bit now about the geology of the region. Exactly. Um, because talking about the mission is one thing, but why exactly did they choose Jezero Crater and uh, what's so special about this place? Um, it wasn't an easy decision. That's what you get from researching that there were a lot of different contenders, but this is what they decided where it is this is where they decided to go because uh, this is a very very complex crater with a seemingly pretty complex history um so maybe to first give some very very general information um the jessero crater is situated in isidis planitia which is a region on Mars, north of the equator, on the to the east of the planet, basically straight nor in the northeast of the Mars map. Um, Isidis Planitia itself is about a thousand two hundred kilometers across, and I read that it was presumably created by an impact. This is once again yeah. more your part. Um, it's about 3.9 billion years old. And then Jezero Crater itself is situated in the north, north, northwest of uh, Isidis Planitia. Yeah. Jezero Highland boundary. Exactly. It's at the edge of towards higher elevations in the northwest. Uh, so basically. Basically, if you imagine having a crater, it's on the verge to the higher surface around it. 
So the marshness like this dichotomy, the Martian northern side is much lower in elevation and much smoother than the southern part, the southern hemisphere of Mars, it's much higher in elevation and much rougher. And that's why, for example, some scientists think that the north could have been filled in with an ocean before. And it's directly at that boundary. Indeed. Uh, but also in general, it's uh, you have this crater structure still, so yeah. the elevation around it is generally higher. Yeah. Uh, Jessero Crater itself is about 28 miles across, corresponding to about 45 kilometers. Um, and it was presumably also, yeah, created by an impact. So now we get into the more interesting stuff and into the stuff which is of particular interest for the mission. Uh, this crater has rocks up to 3.6 billion years old. And uh, now these deposits are very interesting because there is not just this is not just a simple crater and if you have a bit of experience with geology uh, you can pretty quickly see that something strange is going on here or was going on uh, I would encourage everyone listening to go to the the website of the DLR because they have a 3D map, an interactive 3D map uh, with, of this crater, of Jessero Crater, and you can then go to different vantage points. Uh, and this could maybe add to what I'm about to explain right now, because you can then uh, look around yourself freely. And it's pretty cool. That's actually pretty, pretty cool. Hmm. And we're once again going to link to that in the description on YouTube. So you have this crater. And what's pretty special now is that you have different channels. So you don't really have just this normal crater rim, but you have three very distinct channels crossing this boundary. This is one observation. Another pretty interesting observation is that you have very particular sedimentary structures present in the west of the crater, which on Earth correspond to uh, river deltas. So think of areas close to the sea through which where water of rivers uh, flows into the sea and where it just spreads out. You have these big triangular areas where the, the river basically floods a whole area. And you have these structures, so you from these different channels, you have the, the Western channel called Neretva Vallis. And this is where you have this big delta 
structure, delta type structure, which is approximately five kilometers west to east and 10 to 15 kilometers south to north. And what's interesting is you can actually see, yeah, structures which look as if they would have been produced by something flowing. Mm. So, um, so you have these straight structures from the west towards the east. Um, and this is very distinctive there. Yeah. I mean, it definitely looks like a delta. I know that yeah. some people are more careful about these things and they call them often. Also, I called them in, in the work that I have done now um, because I have a similar but much larger structure in the area that I'm working on. We call them more precociously sedimentary fen deposits mm, yeah. um, because delta directly implies that there was water there and yeah. of course it 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 probably was water but you can be a bit more careful about it and you call them sedimentary fen deposits but yeah it's beautiful and you can even see the as you said the different channels that were once there yeah and i mean this is more meant in descriptive terms so this yeah. is more meant uh, as just giving you an image of what is present. Um, and yeah, this is, it's pretty impressive. It's really an impressive structure. You have the second inlet then more to the north, coming from the north, which is Sava Valles, um, north to south oriented. It also has flowing structures, but it doesn't really look as distinct as the Western Delta. And um, what is also pretty interesting, and you can actually see that from these different vantage points in this interactive map from the DLR, the North Rim seems to be less distinct and mm. to slope way more gradually than the South Rim. So think you have these channels in the north and northwest. You have, yeah, the, this more gentle slope in the north. You have a less distinctive rim of the crater. And yeah, what this would suggest in general is that potentially erosion took place there. And that sediment was deposited in which created, in turn, slowly this gentle slope. And this is what what I found pretty impressive, because you can actually recognize that in uh, the 3D map. But this is, this is basically what you can observe with your own eyes. There is a lot more going on, uh, because Thomas already talked a lot about spectroscopy. So basically looking at the spectrum of light emitted from the surface and what uh, spectroscopy data for this particular crater has suggested in the past was that there is, well, carbonate present. Uh, and once again, Thomas discussed this earlier. This is on earth pretty often connected with water this is oftentimes connected with uh, life because a lot of plankton 
here on Earth and in general, a lot of microscopic life forms tend to form calcitic shells or calcareous shells. You have clay minerals present in some way, shape or form, which incorporate water into their crystal structure. So this is all something we know from Earth being connected to water. And it's not even only that, because I read a paper which went more into detail with that. And they, for example, stated that there are a couple of different um, carbonate deposits, that it seems that they could be connected to one another, but it's this it's pretty complex because some deposits seem to have been re or some deposits seem to contain redeposited material mm -hmm. of former uh flowing flow systems it's it's all pretty we we know that some redeposition has taken place there that's the point i think and something yeah, pretty inter interesting I read was that there's smectide present, iron magnesium smectide. Hmm. And that's pretty interesting because that's what we know from Earth once again. Uh, yeah, this is created when basalts weather on Earth. You know what I mean? Yeah. So once again, good indicator that redeposition has taken place. There is a lot going on, a lot of hints at water flows into a large lake in this crater. There could very well be signs of life. These, these calcareous deposits would be very good contenders as uh, basically deposits hinting at former activity of life, if present. And all of this makes this very particularly interesting. Yeah, there is a lot of evidence that water was there at some point. So when we talk about water on Mars, um, this fluid water in these surface, you know, water bodies existing on the surface of Mars. Um, then we talk about time scales around 3.5 to 4 billion years ago. So. That was extremely long ago, but exactly. It's yeah. uh, I've read it being suggested that in general, uh, about three point eight billion years ago, activity would have ceased there. Yeah, three point nine, three point or no, no, three point eight exactly. Um, I mean, all of this seems to have taken place in the late Noachian period. Uh, yeah. So it, it it's supposed to have been a pretty wet time. But I mean, mm -hmm. that's the interesting thing. You have these indicators at redepositional processes, which we only know in connection with water here on Earth. Truly, you have hints at water. Uh, as the old saying goes, follow the water. If life was there, this might have been a suitable habitat. And this is yeah. this is the reason why they want to look into these deposits, why these are good contenders for potential. Uh, I mean, not, not even only for life, but 
in general, this could really give us an idea of how deposition on Mars worked. And the mineral yeah. mineral assemblages are of key note here. Because once again, these minerals, they contain water. We know that here on Earth, they are connected to flowing water and to weathering processes. And this alone is very interesting. If there, we don't detect any signs of formal life, it's a pity, of course. Um, it would be spectacular if it happened, but even if not, it's very interesting to find out more about well, how hydrodynamics on Mars worked, how how hydrogeology worked. And um, I mean, you told me once before that there have even been suggestions that maybe there can be other explanations than a large ocean or large lakes yeah. for yeah, all these is... structures. Yeah, that's what, for example, I'm trying currently trying to figure out for my reach, uh, the... Um, you know the presence of water and in which type the water was there and um yeah it's it's extremely complicated stratigraphy on mars is so complicated because we can just look at it from space and there is so many question marks that we still have that's a very active discussion and to be honest in in many parts we have absolutely no clue and yeah that that robot can do a lot for that yeah. Yeah. So um, also maybe to add, if we don't find there any evidence for life, this of course does not mean that there was no life on Mars. Um, it's extremely difficult to find signs of life that are over three billion years old. That's yeah. an incredible long period of time, and also that's just a so small spot, you know, on Mars. Yeah. And the rover can just do uh, well in the end and. Small area, so maybe just some 100 kilometers farther north. I don't know. Maybe there is the evidence that we search for all the time, but we've never yeah. saw it with the rover. Yeah, you never know. You never know. It's it's a shot into the blue, but yeah, it's a very fascinating region, regardless, and that's the important point. I think it's yeah, it's it's a very interesting region. I mean, just seeing these structures alone. Um, I reckon I realize right now that I forgot to say this, but there's also an outflow, which is pretty important because yeah, you have these two inflows I mentioned, Neretva Vallis and Sava Vallis, um, but there's also uh, an outlet flow, for example. So you can even see this one; it's uh, directed. Or it's positioned in the east of the crater and you can see that there was some kind of an hydrodynamic system something was going on there um, no matter what happened there it's there are a lot of question marks but yeah that's why our little friend perseverance is up there or over there yeah and we're going um, to be listening eagerly to what he has to say, or it has to say. Yeah, we can say he. <laughs> Is it a he? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Perry is like his, or Percy, Percy is his uh, nickname. 
Um, and also, since it's such an interesting topic, and as I said before, I'm working on a project that it's connected to the ESA Mars rover that will mm-hmm. launch next year, which is also um, built for the search for life. Um, I think we can actually do an episode about that topic once because there are many things that I've worked have worked on, for example, the or will work on, for example, the sedimentary history. In my region, for example, is the largest sedimentary fen on whole Mars, probably. Mm-hmm. And we also have phyllosilicates, so the clay minerals that you talked about, and they're very interesting, and you can actually say a lot about them. So maybe we... Well, well, I think we will come back to Mars at, at some point. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's just a too interesting place to stay away from. I mean, there is a lot of... There are a lot of interesting places in our solar system alone, and you know what what keeps amazing me is that no two places really are the same it's still i find it a bit strange actually in some ways that that everything seems to be pretty different um but yeah mars it's just venus and mars they both seem like earth 2.0 potentially gone wrong and this is so fascinating (laughs) One has an atmosphere which is turned into the absolute hothouse and is now one of the most hostile things you can imagine. And the other one <laughs> let go of its atmosphere. And just these two very, very contrary extremes I find very, very interesting. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um I don't have the time in view because my counter for some reason restarted. Oh, we're running uh, long, don't worry. <laughs> okay, then let maybe maybe let's end on one question. So that I one question that I want to ask you and then I will answer it myself. Mm. And try to answer let's try to answer in just a few sentences. Oh dear. A two part question. Or no, maybe one part question. <laughs> so just and of course, there's no scientific meaning behind it. It's just something I wanted to ask. Do you think that there could have been life on Mars once or there would have been life on Mars once? And very surprised if we would find signs of life or if we find no signs of life, basically. I wouldn't be surprised at the le- no. in the least. Like, for real, it's... Of course, I would be overwhelmed because this yeah. would mean we're not alone. And this this would be the announcement the past century of astronomy worked towards, you know. And just think about the philosophical meaning this would have. Yeah, the emotions at that point, you would feel. At that point, humans will no longer be something... I mean, we still be something special, but or life on Earth, not humans. Life on Earth would be not something special anymore, still, but it will be statistics. Yeah, it will be just one other dot in the plot. Exactly. Uh, yeah. We would finally have a sample size of two. <laughs> and this, this alone, this is an amazing and an incredible thought. But uh, with the first few days weeks months having passed i think looking back at that particular moment 
it would not have been a surprise for me. Absolutely not. Given the mm. conditions which could have been present there and given what we know life to be capable of, uh, yeah, on Earth alone, let alone the fact that who knows what else, what what kinds of uh, forms and shapes and capabilities life could have somewhere else. I mean, just think about what's going on with the whole Venus discussion right now. Hmm. Yeah, enough sentences. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I would put it actually nearly the same way as you did. I would not be surprised if we would find evidence of life. I would, of course, also be overwhelmed, but I would not be surprised. But also at the same time, I would not be surprised if we would never find evidence. It's yeah. like either either scenarios. It's so likely there could be life, but that still doesn't could have been life, but it still does not say that there had to be life. There's so many unknowns that we still have and maybe there was life and we never find the evidence for it. It's there are so many question marks, but either way, I would not be surprised, but of course overwhelmed if we will ever find the maybe, evidence. Maybe uh, I think I didn't answer this part of the question, but do you think there was life? Do you really think that? Um, I mean, oh, that's so difficult to answer, but I mean... <laughs> Just your definite... feeling, your gut feeling. Yeah. There definitely was the... I think there was an habitability of some regions on Mars that could definitely have formed life. And I personally, I personally, since on Earth life formed basically so fast, I will, I personally think that that might have been possible, yes. I think that maybe <laughs> even on a very small regional <laughs> scale, but I think that it would have been possible, yeah. That's, I mean, that is of, this, of course, has absolutely no meaning to it because just... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that's but, what I was asking, just your gut feeling. Yeah, I, I say yes. I, I think <laughs> I tend to say yes, yeah. I mean, normally I would say could be either way, but if you directly ask me, I would say yeah. yes. This is not based on reason. Um, I yeah. mean, <laughs> I, I am more of a pessimistic guy and then I am often the one who tends to go for the less spectacular explanations. And so my gut feeling would actually be no. Yeah, because I personally think that life is nothing spectacular. You know what I mean? I think yeah. that life in simple form is maybe even for spread. But to be to be really fair, early Mars was a hellhole. It was, it was not this beautiful, oh, there's an ocean and we have beaches. That's 3.8 billion years ago. To that point still very large impacts happens on like a regular basis and stuff like that so hmm. it was definitely no easy easy place to live back yeah then. but early earth wasn't either yeah oh, yeah that's so true. It's, yeah it's it's just i don't know really if i would just have to and i of course i'm not not really i'm i'm not really uh, in that kind of field of research but just my pure gut feeling I don't know. I, I, it says there wasn't life. It's absolutely it's it's absolutely reasonable to assume that it was just compared to Earth. I think, but it's just a pure feeling. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible topic and I actually find it very interesting <laughs> or very cool that we have maybe different gut feelings about this and yeah. just about the history of, or like the habitability of Mars in general is also a very interesting topic that we also probably go back, <laughs> get back to. Yeah. Like, like all these different topics, we, 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 oh Jesus, yeah. this list, this list, we, we have so much to talk about and. Yeah, that's that's always the most fun part. This little discussion at the end, I think. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, especially at that point because there's so m much more that I have in my mind because I kind of worked on that, you know. But I have yeah. to t have to take myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that's the cool thing. You're actually involved with stuff like that, and. Yeah, just imagine what could come from this mission right now, what we could know in a few months' time. Who the hell knows? Maybe we'll have an incredible answer just around the corner. And although, yeah, it might not happen, it could. It very well could. Oh, yes. But, uh, of course, then again, you'll have to go through a lot of different fail-saves and retesting and reevaluating as science does but okay okay <laughs> that was incredible um <laughs> i think that concludes the episode for today i hope you got some kind of overview of the mission itself um to like know what you maybe can expect in the future and we will probably give updates to that mission all the time once there is something new happening. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially if something incredible happens. But <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Yeah. So, thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Rocket Your End podcast. If you enjoyed listening to us, please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Everything addressed in this podcast reflects our own opinion. You can contact us at 4.5gaindemaking at gmail.com. That is 4.5gaindemaking at gmail.com. All music used is from Kevin McLeod and was downloaded from filmmusic.io under the Creative Commons license. That is heavy interlude for intro and outro and home base groove for intermission. How about uh, it's it's uh, um, what do you want to tell us? <laughs> Speicherplatz. Oh, German yeah. word of the day. The, the, the second or uh, third this time. Interestingly, I never used the German word. I only used the English word, but now I can figure it out. Um, the yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't cut, come to mind. I will cut you, so that's a bit faster. <laughs> yeah. But um, the, um <laughs> what? Um, storage? Storage space, right? Yeah. 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 Storage. <laughs>